We're in Matthew uh, chapter 21, verses 18 through 27. So Matthew 18, or Matthew 21, 18 through 27. We're continuing uh, through the, the Passion Week. I have no announcements, so I'll just wait till I hear the pages stop turning. All right, Matthew 21, verses 18 through 27. Let's pray, and we'll look at our text. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We, um, Father, we come uh, desiring to hear a word from you. Father, we thank you that your uh, scriptures are living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Father, I pray that as we uh, continue our journey through Matthew, Lord, that you would help us to understand uh, the story in its context and, and what was happening and, and, and what was the cause um, and the reason behind today's story, which is really an obscure story. Uh, so, Father, we pray uh, that your spirit would guide us this day, Lord. Uh, help us to understand your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 21 Starting in verse 18. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say, but from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He said, he also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm not sure when I first heard the, uh, the, the saying, relationship, not re religion. I don't know if you guys have all heard that saying. Uh, it's, it's really popular amongst evangelical circles. Um, I, I, I knew that I was a young believer when I heard this term for the first time, or I was in the process of becoming a believer. Um, I, I was going to a Tuesday night Bible study in La Jolla, and, and I was sort of this, this, this saying was sort of said to me, and they were trying to challenge me in my understanding of God, I think. And, and it, that, that saying, relationship, not religion, just sort of, 
it went into my heart and sort of tinkered around in my brain for probably months, uh, trying to figure out what they meant by that. And, and I think through that sort of exp- that expression, I came to understand that Christ wanted a relationship with me. And ultimately, my life was transformed uh, through this very powerful, this truth of, of relationship, not religion. I believe that this is at the heart of today's passage of what Jesus is confronting. This, this whole story, and, and really, the, I want to say the next week, but it's going to take us months to get through the next week. Um, yesterday or last week's story happened uh, on the, the first day of the week, on Sunday. Today's on Monday. Uh, we're, we're working through the very last week of Jesus' life. And, and throughout this week, the big shadow that is over Jesus is the shadow of the temple. Um, I, I wasn't sure where I wanted to talk about this, but I figure if there's a picture in front of me, I get distracted. And so um, first, if you can't see the picture, I'm sorry. You know, hopefully you can see it a little bit. You don't, don't worry about reading the stuff around it. Um, if you are a smartphone user or iPad user or the other, the non-iPad version of the iPad, which I can never remember, Dave, a tablet or something, a surface or whatever it is, you know, the, the thing that looks like a pad that's not an iPad. Um, uh, surface Pro 4, if you have one of those, you can download the uh, Faith Life app and, um, and you can see anything that's on the screen. You can see it on there and you can take a screenshot to kind of look, look later. Oh, we're dimming the lights. Thanks, guys. So what we have here, um, just to sort of this big rectangle is... Present-day Israel, this is the Dome of the Rock, the Temple Mound. Um, you can see the gold dome right there. This, this is, would have been the location of, this would have been the location of um, where the temple sat. This big square area is huge. I mean, it's, I, I think it's 25 acres large. This little tiny section right here, you know when you see images of, of uh, the feast or um, the various holidays in Israel where... Um, there's the Western Wall where people gather, to, and you see thousands of people in that little area. That that area, well, that huge area is just that little portion right there. To put it into perspective, how big uh, this area is. This is the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. Um, uh, out from the temple here, you have this little finger in red. This is the city of David. This this was Jerusalem. Uh, during the whole Old Testament. So anytime you read about Jerusalem in the Old Testament, this is what we're talking about. Uh, the, the, the outer wall around modern-day Jerusalem, that wasn't developed till much later. Um, the, right here is the Kedron Valley. Uh, this is the Mount of Olives, all of the, the graves. It actually extends to the north quite a bit. Uh, much of our story has Jesus sort of passing down into Jerusalem, coming up through the eastern gate right there. Um, so this is just the image I wanted you guys to have in your mind, um, just to, so you can help come to terms with what's happening. Or sorry, you can turn on the lights. Thanks, uh, Benjamin. Um, and so as Jesus comes to this this story or this this fig tree, um, at the heart of this is trying to teach. It's about relationship. It's not about religion. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of his uh, most famous works, I think, is the Screw Tape Letters. There's a play about it now. Um, he, it was, he said it was the hardest book he ever had to write, and he would never write another letters uh, after this. But the screw tape letters, I think there was like 73 letters. And sort of the, 
the, the picture or the storyline in this book, it's about a senior demon talking to his young nephew. So there's Screwtape, who's the uncle. Then there's uh, Wormwood, who is the nephew. And it's these letters sort of from a demonic perspective of how do you go about your life to disrupt the church of Christ? And one of the things that he writes about in one of the letters, it's uh, Screwtape says to Wormwood, now, remember, everything he's saying is sort of opposite. So when he talks about the enemy, he's talking about Jesus. So it can kind of, we're, we're going to the other side. We're, we're imagining that we're not following Christ. We're following screw tape that wants to destroy Christ's church. And so he writes, if you can obscure these facts, there's a good chance that he will embrace what hell considers to be the perfect synonym for true religion, churchianity. In this marvelous imitation of the enemy's church, everything looks, sounds, looks and sounds right and good, but the enemy's spirit is conspicuously absent. You must arrange to make him a devout Methodist or Anglican or Baptist or Presbyterian or what have you. Make him that. He must come to accept the church as a type of religious social club where people congregate, nothing more. In a word, Wormwood, help him to become more religious, but for hell's sake, not more Christian. And this is at the absolute heart of what Jesus is addressing. As he's going back and forth to the temple, you have, you have the shadow of the temple, which had become something that, that God had never intended it to be. It had become super religious, super, uh, you follow their rules and their authority. God is totally absent. Uh, prior to today's story, Jesus goes into the temple for the first time. He starts kicking over tables and money cha- the money changers and people who are selling doves and ripping off the people from within the temple. And and he says, you guys have destroyed my father's house. This, this, this is, was intended to be a house of prayer. And look what you've turned it into. You've turned it into this huge Ponzi scheme where the priests and the Levites and the scribes are making millions of millions of dollars off of people who are trying to come and worship. And so as he, as he enters again today's story, uh, we'll look at the text here in verse 18. Now in the morning, so it's believed that this is now Monday morning. When he was returning to the city, coming from Bethany, making his way west to the temple. Um, Now, in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Okay, so before we get into the story, there's a parallel passage in Mark chapter 11 verses 12 through 14 and then at the end of the chapter in verses 20 through 24 mark tells the same story mark uh he tells it in a different way and so i want mainly what happens here matthew tells the story and if we were just to read matthew alone we would we would read it in the sense that jesus comes upon the fig tree this is a fig tree this podium up here jesus curses a fig tree and immediately it just dies like right on the spot mark the story as they were going in in the morning jesus sees a tree he curses it they continue on into the city by the time they come back um the next day i believe uh, the the fig tree had withered and peter's like whoa what happened like how did that happen and so they they have very different purposes in writing there's there's no conflict 
Matthew is writing to the Jews. He, he is consolidating his stories that he tells to, to build a strong case to the Jewish person uh, to, to show that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Matthew tells this whole story together uh, as Jesus is about to enter into the temple because this story is kind of wild. And it fits, every, this whole purpose of the story has nothing to do with a fig tree not producing fruit. It has everything to do with the temple having leaves on it, but having no fruit of God uh, within it. And so it's morning time. He's returning to the city. We have no idea how early. Some suspect that this is very early in the morning that they left before breakfast. But we see the humanity of Jesus that he's, that he's hungry. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. He experienced hunger and everything that we go through. And so he's hungry. He sees a fig tree off on the distance. Mark tells us it wasn't the time for figs. And so if you read this, it's like, man, Jesus really threw a temper tantrum here in this poor fig tree, like really suffered. But if you do some research on figs, especially during that time and even during present day, uh, there's sort of three months. I believe it was uh, March, January, February, March, April, May. I think it was February, March, April, or March, April, May. I forget which three months. But when a fig tree begins to bud, the very first thing that comes out is these little flower-like things that were edible. And it was a Jewish word that I can't, like takish, and, and there's a Palestinian word today that they still eat these little buds there. And so um, before the leaves came out, there were these little buds that they could eat. Then the leaves would come out. And as the leaves came out, those little buds would, would turn into a fig, the actual fruit. And so Mark says it wasn't fig season. He's not saying that Jesus was being like demanding on the fig tree. Like the fig tree is not even supposed to be demanding. They have figs at this point. But it should have had... Those little, those little fruit buds that, that were edible. And so Jesus comes to this, this tree. We know that he's hungry. He sees this lone fig tree, verse 19. He came to it and he found nothing on it except leaves only. That's a huge indication. If there were leaves, there should have been at least those fruit buds that were edible on it. Um, and he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you at once the fig tree withered and so when i look at this story the first thing that sort of comes to my mind is jesus is hungry he's having a bad attitude and i i know that uh my wife and melanie have developed a term i don't know if they stole it from somebody but the term is hangry and it's the idea you know when you're hungry and suddenly you start getting mad at every little thing like especially if you're trying to diet or something and you're just sort of like the world's crankiest person but you're just hangry you're hungry and you're starving and you should just carry little Snickers bars to kind of snack on. And so you get kind of the impression that Jesus is hangry in this story. But, but as we get into the story, you realize that his, his anger towards this fig tree has nothing to do with the fig tree. It has to do with the shadow of this temple, um, of his temple, his place that was supposed to be his father's home that had been so distorted. And we'll see as the picture develops that the leaves, this imagery that he's using, this is sort of a, um, a living parable, a living object lesson that he's trying to get the disciples to see. Um, it, it seems harsh. One commentator I read, it said something that I thought was fascinating. He said, uh, the fig tree had a far more important purpose in dying than in living. 
So this fig tree, which I don't know what a fig tree's normal lifespan is, but in this quick death of this fig tree, we're still talking about this fig tree um, today. So very honorable death this fig tree had. Um, in the shadow of the temple, Jesus, Jesus is, is sort of positioning the disciples to ask him a question about why did you do this? I, I say that wrong because they didn't. You would think that they, they'd ask why. They said, how did you do this? Sort of indicating like, uh, can we do this too? <laughs> like, how, how did you pull this off? Uh, look at verse 19, uh, where are we at? Verse 20, seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? How, how did this happen? And up to this point, Jesus is just sort of, he seems angry at the fig tree. Oh, if you're not going to have fruit now when you're supposed to have fruit, never again will you have fruit, and then the thing dies. And the disciples, you'd think that, why, why did you do that, Jesus? Uh, this is, this is the only, there's only two destructive miracles that Jesus does in his whole earthly ministry. The, the first is, you remember, the swine off the cliff. That's, that's miracle destruction, uh, a, a miracle that was sort of destruction. All of the pigs ran off the cliff and they died. Uh, negative miracle, number one. This is the only second miracle, and he'd never do any other miracle that was sort of negative, that he curses this fig tree and he dies. Normally, he's healing people, raising them from the dead, giving their, giving their sight back, curing them of leprosy, um, all sorts of wonderful miracles. But, but two miracles he does with sort of a negative bent. And you think that the disciples, or I would think sort of in hindsight looking at this, saying, Jesus, why did you do that? But they ask, How? And Jesus' answer is going to go a, a, a totally different direction. He's going to respond to them with terms, sort of uh, three terms that stand out to me. Faith, prayer, and believing. Which, how does that fit with a fig tree like that just is swallowed up? And, and so everybody understands that, that this fig tree is symbolic of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree was used dealing with Israel, dealing with the temple. Uh, warnings were given uh, towards Israel using the, the illustration of a fig tree. And so Jesus' teaching here is to warn the listeners during that time concerning following God and sort of getting off track. And so when they ask how, Jesus answers in verse 21, and Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith, and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. I'm not going to um, go into too much detail or no detail really about the whole concept of moving a mountain by faith. I don't want to get sidetracked. There's, there's no evidence anywhere that Jesus ever uh, moved a mountain by faith. There's no evidence that any of the early apostles moved mountains by faith. Um, all indications in the literary, literary language of this, this, this story point to Jesus is sitting there. They're looking at the Mount of Olives, and he's saying, the idea is that if you have faith, if you're in relationship with me, it, it, it's this, this is picture. He's not saying trying to give them a lesson on how to move mountains by faith. He's saying that if you have faith, God can overcome great things through your faith. And, and there are barriers, there are things that you will experience that if you have this vibrant living relationship with God, if you seek him in prayer, these things can happen. 
And so when I look at this story and I, and I start pondering these, these, these 12 guys who are, they're nobodies. I mean, I mean they, they really absolutely are nobodies. There are people who, who wa- washed out of sort of rabbinic school. Every young man would, would start, uh, you know, the kindergarten years, learning the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, after a few years, you would go to the family trade. Um, the key students would be selected to kind of move on, and if, they, if you moved on from there, then you, you'd eventually, um, you know, a very small percentage could study under a rabbi. None of these guys qualified in that level. These guys were all told that they, they sort of washed out. As you go through Acts, you see uh, these guys are just fishermen and tax collectors. They're, they're, they're nobody of any sort of religious importance. And so going to the temple is a big, big deal. Like this is a huge, 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 huge event in a, in a, in a person's life. And so here they are with Jesus, and they're seeing the temple, and they're in awe of the temple. This is the greatest building, the, the greatest structure during that time in human history. They are in awe of this. And, and I sense in their hearts that they wanted to sort of be a part of, this, of the establishment, to, to be sort of groomed into sort of um, the, the rabbis and the scribes, and yet their teacher was sort of in conflict w- with the establishment. My, my early life in Christ, I, I really struggled with my identity, struggled with where, where do I fit in this Christianity thing? Like I knew that I liked Jesus, like I loved Jesus, I, I eventually gave him my life. But as I gave him my life, there was the whole this church culture. And maybe it wasn't even church culture, it's what I imagined church culture to be. And so I thought, well, if I want to be a good Christian, I, I need to start doing certain things that aren't even like biblical things. They're just things that I perceived uh, that, that the church culture sort of told me or I, I thought I should be. And it was a real struggle because it really, I, I started to develop this very outward, um, like going to church and just trying to act like everything was okay in my life. And yet on Monday night, I knew where the dollar beer special was, and I'd be getting loaded and like getting drunk Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. By Saturday night, I'd have to stop the drinking early because there was church the next day. And I was going to Tuesday at Bible study, so I didn't do anything on Tuesday nights. But, um, but, but so I was really sort of living these two lives, and, and, and my Christian life was really focused on the externals. Focused on, okay, when I'm around Christian folk, I got to really watch my mouth. No swearing, no, um, you know, got to dress right, got to, you know, carry my Bible around. I have to do all of these things. When they asked me about how's my relationship, because that was a big thing in my, the, me and Jesus are good, we're tight. But it meant, like, it really meant nothing. I was just sort of trying to uh, be the social chameleon in, in, in the church circles. So my externals, I was really doing a good job, but deep within me, I wasn't doing okay with God. And this whole religion versus relationship, th- this is a really, really slippery slope because there's, in a lot of ways, it's only what God can measure, and, and we're terrible at measuring each other. We can look at each other and say, oh, you're so, this is such a good Christian person and like really loves the Lord, but they're totally rotten on the inside, but we can't see it. And Jesus, he, he is confronting this issue of having a, a beautiful exterior, leaves that are green, and clearly the fig tree is getting lots of water. There's all sorts of evidence that what's happening should be good. 
But when you start fumbling through the leaves, it's like, where are those figs? Where are they at? And when he looks at the temple, he's like, this is a big show. It's beautiful. All this gold, all of these huge stones, all of these people coming and making these sacrifices. The religious guys wearing their religious uniform. Everything appears to be good, but at the heart of it, God is nowhere to be found in this institution. And so his answer, it's really confusing when you look at this. He just kills a fig tree. They ask, how? How did this happen? And then Jesus answers and says, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, doubt is a word that means to have a divided mind. That on one side you trust, on the other side you're talking yourself out of trusting God and having this relationship. Uh, You will not only do what is done for the fig tree, but if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast and see, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And everything in this answer deals with sort of relational things. When I look at the terms faith, prayer, and believing, these, you guys cannot see faith, believing, and prayer in my life. I mean, I could, you know, maybe you can kind of, I can do things and so I'm doing this by faith and I'm doing it, but maybe it's not. Only God can truly measure these, these, these things. And I think that Jesus is telling the disciples, you need to walk closely with God. And if you walk closely with God, he can do, there's really no limit to what God can do in your life. Um, this whole picture is just beautiful. They, at the heart of this fig tree story, what I think of is, is Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4. And, I, and we're going to go there in a second. But, but at the heart is like the message is that God loves you. He cares about you. He desires to have a relationship with you. Um, you don't have to earn his love. Like, like we think I have to do all of these things if God will love to get God to love me. But Jesus is saying, no, God loves you because he created you. He formed you. You're his. And he, because he loves you, that then motivates you. Things happen out of this relationship. If you'll go with me over to Psalm chapter eight, uh, the Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible. And uh, David writes this beautiful Psalm. Actually, when you get there, I'll show you something. So I'm interested in verses 3 and 4, which I, I do think sort of tie in today's story. But if we read the previous verse, it's exactly the verse that Jesus quotes last week as he was in there uh, kicking over the table. Remember, he kicked over the tables. He's challenging what's happening in the temple. The religious leaders come to him and say, what, what are you doing? These, you're allowing these children to, to call out and to say, Son of David, worshiping you as the Messiah. And Jesus responds with verse 2. Haven't you guys read? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the re- re- revengeful cease. Then he goes on in verse 3. This verse that is the probably, I don't want to say it's the most because I have a lot of these, but this is one of those verses that has touched my heart. And David writes, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. I just picture David out there tending his flocks. You know, he's probably not tending his flocks, but as a young man kind of laying out there in the wilderness And when you go out to the wilderness and you can really see the stars and you start thinking like, there's the moon and look at, there's the, all of these galaxies and stars. It's just, 
It's more than your brain can fathom that this just didn't happen, that, 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 that there's a God who put all of this stuff in motion. And if you allow your mind to wander on the, the greatness of God and how awesome he is and how wonderful he is, it, it can be mind-blowing. It, it's, it's almost more than, I mean, it's not almost, it is far more than we can take in. And David in verse 3 says this, but then as he's thinking about the greatness of God and his awesomeness, he then says, what is man that you would take thought of him and the son of man that you'd care for him? Like, I am nobody. Like, in, in light of all of creation, in light, like, that if we're going into the macrocosm of the earth and to see all, like, I, we, I think we only see a, a sliver of, of the whole universe and that everything just sort of works. And then when we look at the earth and we start going to the microcosm and we look at our DNA and our cells and like, how does that work? I mean, the thought that you breathe in air, it goes to your lungs and then blood passes through your lungs and it's able to suck out the oxygen from within your lungs and then put it in your blood and then cycle through your whole body. That's probably a very bad science lesson, but, but at the heart, it's, it's, it's mind, it's mind blowing. And evolutionists, those are atheists that are totally against God would say, it just sort of happened. Like the whole universe exploded and it's fascinating that it would all happen. And, and that takes way more faith to me to think that than, than a creator that put everything together. And science, if, you, if they say, well, if the earth was tilted like a half degree one way or the other, like it wouldn't work. It, it's amazing to me. And, and then when I look at all of this that God has done, that God knows who I am. And not only does he know who I am, he cares about me. And he wants to communicate with me and he wants to have a relationship with me. And he loves me. It's just, I mean, it's, it's almost more than I can take in. And Dave Bishop back there always reminds me, he's like, I, I can't tell you, like it must be probably 300 times a year. He might give me a couple days off. He's like, he's like, Gunnar, you're such like a scum bucket, you know, like you are nothing. And this God that loves you this much, and he's talking about himself in the same way, kind of like the, when you understand how good God is, like, it's just mind-blowing. And Jesus wants this as we go back to Matthew. I think the heart of this fig tree story is, is don't let these guys in the temple, don't let this religion, don't let all of this get you off of track at the, at the core of everything is that God loves you because he created you. And he's saying this as he's going to the cross to die for them. And you could really take a bent against like organized religion, but I like just a little sidebar is at the end of the day, at the end of this week, when Jesus is crucified, and even after he ascends into heaven, we read that the, the, the apostles continue to go to the temple and to worship him, this incorrupt place that they still continue to go and they worship him correctly uh, in this, this institution that had gotten so far off of track. Um, so when I look at this fig tree and I think of fruit and I start pondering, how does this translate to our lives? The little letter of Galatians, if you would turn to Galatians chapter five, I believe that Galatians addresses exactly what Jesus is confronting. We won't read all of Galatians right now, but as you're turning there, I'll give you sort of some cliff notes. 
Galatians is probably one of the Apostle Paul's very earliest writing. It's probably the first letter that he wrote uh, in the region of Galatia, which is sort of modern-day Turkey area. Um, A bunch of Gentiles had accepted Christ as Savior. And then as the gospel went through there, there was a group of religious Jews, Judaizers, who would go through in the wake of, of the gospel and instead of being set free um, through the power of the cross, they had convinced the believers that they needed to go back to religion. They needed to do all of these religious duties if they wanted to maintain um, a right relationship with God. And Paul, this Pharisee of the Pharisees, uh, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, this, this man who was the most religious man of, like, of all time, He's infuriated that they had been put back under the bondage of religion. And so this whole letter, sort of as, it, as we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit, Paul is trying to, to get them to, to go back to the grace of God. And so in Galatians uh, chapter 5, verse 1, I'll just, I'm going to ease into the fruit of the Spirit. Paul writes, it was for freedom that Christ sent us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery, that was religion. That was doing a bunch of things, trying to make yourself right with God. It wasn't literal uh, slavery in the sense that they were owned by somebody. They, they were owned by religion. And, it, and the freedom that, that Christ died for them to give them freedom in Christ, freedom in God, uh, to, to walk in grace. They had slipped back into the slavery. And Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Christ, Christ, Christ made the payment for you. There's nothing else you can do. Then coming down to verse 16. Or maybe verse 13. Again, it says, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. Now down to verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And so this term walk, it's a hupotasso. It's this word that it's a military term for for marching, marching in step. And he's saying, walk by the spirit, like get in step with the spirit of God that is in your life. And if you're walking with him, if you're in sync with him. You're not going to carry out the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit will manifest itself in your life. I'm going to skip over verse 18 as we are, uh, well, it goes on, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Then there's the deeds of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. And then we come to verse 22. And the reason I'm coming here is because, remember, fig tree, fruit, no fruit, death. Warning about the temple, warning about the system of religion. The same thing happens within Christianity. And so what we should desire in our lives is the fruit of the Spirit. And in verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is um, a very, very important distinction. Um, it is. It's, it's singular. This is not a, a, a buffet at soup plantation where you can pick and choose um, various items. Uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit is not our work working out of our lives it's the spirit of god and if we are subjected to the spirit if we're in step with him 
his fruit will manifest itself in our lives. So it's sort of all of the above. And if you were to go back up to verse 19, you would read now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are plural and not limited to. So you can have a, you know, one or you could do this, the, the supplantation choices with the deeds of the flesh, but I'm not suggesting you do just to be clear. Um, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There's no way you can legislate any of these items. And then jumping down to verse 15, he says, if we live by the spirit, let us also walk, get in step with the spirit. Like the key to what Christ is talking about here with this fig tree you can go back to Matthew. The, the, the danger, what, they had, what, what Judaism had turned into was a system of religion, totally divorced from God. They had taken their things. They were profiting off of it. They had the people enslaved to doing what they, were, what, what they wanted them to do. They called the shots. They told them how to worship. They did all of these things. And none of the people were growing closer to God, although externally, there was a whole lot of fruit. Sacrifices were being made. It looked very, very sort of godly from the external. But Jesus says, when I look at what's happening at the temple, there's a whole bunch of leaves, but there is no fruit from God. And if you want to have fruit, um, turning to faith, prayer, and believing, as we walk in relationship with God, the fruit of the Spirit will begin to manifest itself in our lives. And so now, in verse 23, they leave the fig tree. They make their way into the temple. Remember, the day before, Jesus had already sort of upset everybody. Um, his reputation is sort of, I mean, his reputation is widespread at this point. They're planning his death. They're trying to figure out, like, what loophole can they use to execute this man who's, who's causing this revolt, who's who's challenging our system. And so when he entered the temple, verse 23, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching. Now this could seem, um, this could seem a little like rude, like, oh, he's teaching and you're interrupting. Cause like in, th in this context, I'm teaching. And if somebody was to walk in and say, Hey, I want to start talking to you, it would be frowned upon. Like this is like, Hey, this is not in our culture. This isn't the way you do it. But this would have been an informal uh, sort of, the 12 of them gathered around, I'm sure some added onlookers, and Jesus is kind of going back and forth. To have somebody come up, uh, it wasn't a big deal. And Jesus, in many ways, was, was open to them coming and asking him some questions. Um, but he's now inside of the temple. And this is a big deal. You're now on, on the scribes and, and the, the Pharisees, the priests. You're on their turf. You operate by their rules. Um, today, when you go to the temple, um, what happens is, is you, at the western wall, there's a ramp that goes up. You go up into the temple area, but there's security here. There's security here. In order to get in here, you have to go through security. Then to get up into the temple mount, you have to go through security again. It is a... Um, if you're nervous about going to Israel, this is probably one of the places where you're like, your, your nervous meter is, is rising. Um, so now you're entering into Muslim-controlled Muslim area. 
the, the IDF, they control it. So there's, there's military all through there. And you sort of, this is, this is the Alaska Mosque right here. And then you have the Dome of the Rock. So you sort of enter in here. You can kind of meander through there, up through the steps to the Dome of the Rock. And you kind of walk around. And then you basically exit over here. Um, there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of, you cannot do this. You cannot do that. Males are not allowed to touch females, period. No, no, no absolutely not. Um, no scriptures are allowed. I don't know how they've managed like smartphones because you can smuggle in a, a Bible now with a smartphone. But, but no Christian literature, no Jewish literature, very, very controlling. On this last trip here, it was a very interesting, I was very thankful for the group that they got to see what they saw because it was very unusual. We had, we had made it into the area and there was a huge gathering of, of women by the, by the mosque, and the men, Muslim men, were scattered all around. And a group of, of very devout Jews, they entered into the Temple Mount. Uh, They're they allowed in under very strict conditions, so there were probably like 10 or so of them. And when they come in, they will not, you know, we just meander, I keep turning this off, they'll, we'll just meander all through this area. When a religious Jew comes in, they will only skirt the outside of the area. And, and for fear that they'll actually walk on the holiest of holies. They do not want to walk on the holiest of holies. So they walk in very docile, very placid, just sort of with their, their, their head to the ground. And so we see this group come in. All of the SWAT police are sort of surrounding them. All of the Muslims are like now, it's like this huge uproar in the Temple Mount. They're all screaming, Allah Akbar. And the people in the group are like, what is happening? I'm like, you guys, you're safe. You're fine. This is like religious Jews just kind of. But you could tell people that's, are, are getting uncomfortable. You can see that the, like the, the riot control police are there sort of like putting in tear gas and just like maybe this is going to escalate, maybe not. They made it around. And people are like, whoa. I'm like, this is the reality here. And so then we move our way up there, and it was raining for us, so we're under a little dome by the, the Dome of the Rock, and, and our guide guy, he begins teaching, and he said something. And uh, one of the ladies on the trip said something, and he said, got it right, and she tried to, like, high-five him. And he was about to high-five her, and he's like, whoa, 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 what are you trying to do to me? He's like, no touching of women. Like, and she's like, oh, I forgot, I didn't even, like... And, and so this would have been sort of the same climate in the temple, and so now Jesus is here teaching with his guys and all of the guys that are controlling the rules and what are happening, they come up to Jesus and they have a question for Jesus. They're ticked off at Jesus. They, they're ready to find a way to execute him. And so they come to him in verse, uh, midway through uh, 23, and it says, and said, uh, the chief priests and the elders, they, they came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And so now what authority are they talking about? Well, he kicked over the temples. He kicked over the tables the night before. He'd basically gone through, uh, raised up a lot of sort of problems. The kids are worshiping him as the Messiah. And he said, haven't you guys read the scripture? He, he's already challenged them in a lot of ways. And now he's sitting there teaching. And the, the, the authorities come to him and say, by what authority are you doing this? Where are your credentials? Where, who, who are you teaching under? Who's allowing this? 
So this is, Jesus is sort of in a difficult spot. Well, from a human perspective, not from his perspective. And so Jesus says to them in verse 24, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. He's like, hey, I'm fine. You know, they, they would often exchange, you ask a question, another person would respond with a question, and they would sort of reach their contractual agreement to, to, to give up the answer. He says, I'm fine telling you by whose authority that I'll do these things, that I do these things. And, and if you just answer my one question, I'll, I'll, I will tell you. And so Jesus says, you know, the baptism of John. Remember, John the Baptist has been executed at this point. The baptism of John, from what was its source? From heaven or men? You guys tell me about John the Baptist. So we all know about John the Baptist. We knew about his great ministry. Now, what was his authority? Was his authority from men or was his authority from God? Ooh, good question, Jesus. How are they going to answer this one? And we're going to see... Um, well, first, I love about Jesus is that he responds to them with a question that actually allows them, if their hearts are right, if they're genuine, that by the question that Jesus asked them, they could actually deduce who Jesus actually was. Like, if they were honest, if they were genuinely looking at the evidence, they, they could have come to the conclusion rightly so, that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, his authority is from heaven, and they should actually stop what they're doing and bow down and worship him. And I love that Jesus sort of poses this question so that they could have come to the conclusion that they needed. And we're going to see in there, uh, they're on the horns of a dilemma. They're on the, my favorite part of playing tic-tac-toe is that when you come to the place when your opponent, who you want to see buried in the game of tic-tac-toe, they have no options. If they go here, you win this way. If they go there, you win that way. That's the, the best. You guys don't play tic-tac-toe? <laughs> or are you guys not like winning at tic-tac-toe? Like it's, it's the best when you set up your whole plan and it's like it works out like you're going to win two different ways and that's when somebody flips over the board and, or the piece of paper and says, well, I want a new game, rematch. Um, Jesus has them. And, and so they began reasoning at the end of verse 25 amongst themselves saying, if we say from heaven, like if we say that John the Baptist, his authority came from heaven, he's going to say to us, then why did you not believe him? And what was his message? That he's the forerunner of Christ. And so they knew if they, they knew the right answer. They, they said if they acknowledged that John the Baptist is from heaven, John the Baptist's sole message was to prepare the way for Christ or the Christ who happened to be Jesus, which he told them. And so if they say that, they're kind of, they can't answer it that way because they're too pride, they have their whole system, they can't humble themselves to acknowledge the situation they're in. But then they say, verse 26, but if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And so what we see here is we see men that are spineless politicians that don't know how to stand on the word of God, period. This is the exact opposite of the fig tree. They're so concerned about what people think about them, what is tradition or the authority of the scripture, like the authority, not the scriptures, the, the authority of the temple, 
And the teachers, what do they have to say? That they are so confined in a box that they cannot stand on the word of God. That they can't say, no, you're right, Jesus. John the Baptist was of, of the Lord, and he said that you were the coming Messiah. And as everybody says, it's right here in the Old Testament affirming that. We actually need to bow down and worship you. They say, we can't do that. But if we say of men, then all the people, all these people that are bringing in their animals during, I mean, 250,000 people is the thought, were coming into the temple. This is, the, this is the huge money-making event of, of the year one of three. And if we say that he was of, of, of man, then the whole boat is rocked. And I have this picture of them sort of like the family feud, you know, and there's a question and the family kind of goes into a huddle. How are we going to answer? How are we going to answer? And then they come out and they give their answer. And their answer is, we do not know. <laughs> you guys are cowards. You come down with all this authority. You're, you're afraid to allow the word of God to speak, even if it's uncomfortable for you, even if it challenges your traditions. And so then Jesus basically says, if you're not going to answer my question, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. But Jesus didn't always answer this question this way. Um, Jesus now is in the phase where he's openly sharing who he is. And I think that if he answered the question now, they could have arrested him. They could have arrested him for blasphemy because if he gave the true answer for why he, where his authority came from, that would be blasphemy. And so they could take him into custody. This is the direction that the whole arrest would go. Um, and you, you remember when he's standing, and we'll get there in a few months, when he's standing before Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate's like pleading with him, like, don't you know who I am? Don't you know I have the authority to let you out of here or I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus, I just imagine him sort of smiling with love in his eyes towards Pontius Pilate. And he says, you have no authority other than that which has been given to you by my father. Like, it's okay. You're, you're, you're not going to be held. Like, this is bigger than what you think you're controlling here. If we were to go back to Matthew seven twenty nine, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read there that Matthew says, he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. So when he taught and preached the Sermon on the Mount, those that, that heard and listened, that this man, Jesus, he has authority that is like no one they had ever, ever heard before. In Matthew 9, 6, we read uh, that Jesus said, but, I say, but, but so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That was the story when there was a, the paralytic. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And I imagine the, the paralytic going, great, I didn't come here for my sins. I came here to walk. And then all of the onlookers that were against Jesus, they say, who on earth has the authority to forgive sins? Only God. And then Jesus asked them the question, what's it easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? He says, I say his sins are forgiven and I will show you. And he says, get up and walk. And the man gets up and he walks. But Jesus says the only person that, reason that he healed that guy was to show that he had authority to forgive sins. And finally in Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 in the Great Commission, what does Jesus say to the disciples? All authority has been given to me. 
in heaven and on earth. And he basically says with that authority, he's commissioning the church to carry out the great mission, the great commission of, of, of sharing the gospel, the good news with the world. And so from this story, he's going to continue with his teaching and they are not going to, they're not going to be happy. And so as I look at the story, the, 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 the contrast between the disciples at the fig tree and these religious leaders at the temple, the message here is that the most important thing for each one of our lives is to be in this relationship with Christ. You don't have to do a bunch of good things in order to, to, to earn this relationship, for there's nothing that you can do. Jesus came, he gave his life, he died on the cross according to scriptures so that we might have life in him. And it comes to, it's just believing that. It's, it's hearing the gospel that Jesus died for you according to scriptures for your sins. And when you believe, we're told that we're moved into the body of Christ, we're sealed with the spirit, we're made new. We have access to the Father that he no longer sees our sin. He sees the blood of Christ washed over us. It's, it's beautiful. And our belief leads to life transformation. That if we're walking in relationship with Christ, what we see is true worship results. We see, um, I, I think, humility comes from knowing Christ. Um, conviction of sin, being convicted of your sin, that's a good thing. That means that the Spirit of God is churning in your heart. And if you have conviction of sin, that means that you have repentance. That you're also able to forgive other people. Because if you truly have a relationship with God, you realize how much you've been forgiven of. And so when other people wrong you, it's so much easier to forgive them because you've been forgiven so much more than whatever you could forgive another person of. I think being grounded in grace, the Bible says, tells us that we're saved by grace, but we're also to stand in grace. Our whole lives are to be marked by this, this life-altering transformation of receiving the grace of God. I see dependency, that we're totally dependent on God, which is very un-American because we'd like to be so independent. And so learning to be dependent on, on our Father in heaven is something that comes through this relationship with him. And then the, the, the fruit of the Spirit that we've talked about, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These, these, these are his fruit that bubble up in our lives as we walk with him. We must guard ourselves from Wormwood's plan. Remember, he must come to accept the church as a type of religious social club where people congregate, nothing more. In a word, Wormwood, help him to become more religious, but for hell's sake, not more Christian. And so we don't come to church to play church this isn't the place to come to put on your Sunday's best and to act like you have everything put together. This is where we come to worship the true and the living God that he gave everything so that we might have life in him. Father, we thank you that it's not about religion. And Father, we confess that it is so easy to get sucked into religion and uh, by that thinking that we do certain things to, to earn your love, your kindness, um, your blessing in our lives. 
Father, grace is one of these things that is so much more than we can even begin to fathom. And so, Lord, I pray for each one here, for myself, Lord, that we would get a greater glimpse of what grace is, that we would be set free, Lord, knowing that you love us because you created us, that we would be set free knowing that you, through your Son, have provided a way um, for us to be unbound from our sin, that our sin was paid full in full, not in part, as the great hymn says. Father, I pray for those in this room who may not be clear of their relationship with you, Lord, that you would help them to discover grace, that they would discover salvation, that it's not about works. It's about belief and trusting in what you have done for us. We thank you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.